Hey there everyone, it's James Lindsay, and you are listening to the New Discourses podcast. It's time to talk about the stakeholder model in ESG. I really should probably reflect this off of Klaus Schwab uh, very specifically, since he's credited with developing the so-called stakeholder model. Um, in fact, stakeholder capitalism is his, his claim to fame. Uh, allegedly, he actually cooked this idea up in the 70s. Uh, there are reasons to believe that he didn't cook it up at all, but that he borrowed it from his mentors at Harvard, uh, the infamous Harvard, um, namely, particularly uh, Henry Kissinger. Um, the stakeholder model is a model, ultimately, of oligarchical control, which is a big fancy word to say that there are going to be certain elites who have the secret knowledge of how society is supposed to work and how everything in society is supposed to work, and they're going to run everything, and they're doing it in the name of these things called stakeholders. So you would think that you are a stakeholder because they define stakeholders as everybody who has a stake in the thing. Um, so if a company produces a product, whether you want to buy that product, if you want to buy that product, you have a stake in them producing the product well. But if they, you know, say use water or electricity, since you also depend on water and electricity and resources are in some sense finite, you're a stakeholder in how they run their corporation that way too. If they produce pollution, you're a stakeholder in their environmental damage. So everybody's a stakeholder, but that means that really nobody's a stakeholder. And what they actually are doing is selecting a handful, a handful of experts that are going to actually be the representatives of how the stakeholder thinks. And this model, like I said, is largely attributed to Klaus Schwab. Um, it probably came out of the Harvard Consortium, which included Kissinger at the time. And it is a shift of power from people to the representatives in the stakeholder council, which is as good a time as any to remind you that the word, which I'll mispronounce because I'll try to be fancy about it, that means governing council uh, in, in Russian is Soviet. Uh, so you can, you can do what you want with that. Um, ultimately, what they are going to run through this stakeholder model is a economic system known as distributism. Now, I talked about that in the degrowth, uh, the degrowth communism podcast that I did, talking about uh, the, the, the distributist model. In fact, I called it degrowth distributism instead of degrowth communism, because I realized reading Kohei Saito's book on degrowth communism that what he's actually describing is a distributist model, that the society itself is generating lots of goods and services and products and so on. And then there is, you know, nature and there's society and those things produce a commonwealth. And that what you need are people who are qualified to be able to distribute the commonwealth uh, and the work required to to produce it uh, reasonably. And the model with degrowth is that we're going to degrow the size of our GDP to increase the other aspects rather than commodities and goods and services. We're going to decrease those and in exchange increase the amount of, I guess, free time and sociality and pristine nature and so on, which I guess you're not allowed to really use or see. So you can see pictures of it that somebody took or generated in, a, in an AI or something um, with your virtual travel. 
so that we can preserve the nature better that you'll never be able to see. But that'll be an increased amount of Commonwealth that then they will distribute. So they'll decide how often you can take a vacation because they're distributing your access to go see things like that. They'll decide how much beef you can eat because they're uh, distributing access to uh, what they would consider to be high emissions food supply, food sources. Um, and they'll also decide, you know, in, or, in, in terms of equity to redistribute across past harms and, and injustices in the world, who's going to do the hard labor that nobody wants to do and who gets to do the so-called creative work. Hint, hint, they get to do the creative work and everybody else is their slaves. So anyway, this model, those people that know how to do the distribution of the distributist system are the stakeholders. That's the model that they're building out. A different way to phrase this, I used to try to do this communo-fascism and fascio-communism thing, and it didn't really catch on and people didn't really get it. Um, it's not exactly right. As a matter of fact, they're not particularly fascist in the fascist sense, having reviewed Mussolini. What they are is neoliberal. So what we're really dealing with is a neoliberal communism and communist neoliberalism um, as two sides of the coin. China is uh, neoliberal communism. They are a communist system that's running a neoliberal market to interface with the Western counterpart, which will be a uh, communist neoliberalism, which is a neoliberal, that is to say, uh, big corporations in partnership with the state and sucking off of the government tit as much as they can, um, and basically almost monopoly inclusive behavior uh, operating with, uh, at the level of those big monopolistic companies um, that is doing a communistic redistribution of wealth. And in fact, if they take the degrowth plan that ESG is part of, uh, that's actually intentionally shrinking our economy following the path that Herbert Marcuse laid out in One Dimensional Man, where he said that socialism's got the right ideology, but its problem ultimately is that it can't produce. That's in the second chapter. But capitalism can produce, but it has the wrong ideology. And what the real problem, though, is you say, well, maybe their ideology is right. You know, they're producing, something's working. I mean, that's basically what he admits. But what he had says is that the problem is that what capitalism does is produces all these, this, this endless chain and infinite progress of false needs and the satisfaction of false needs that's ultimately not sustainable. And so it'll eventually collapse in on itself and take humanity with it or lead us into the calamity of a nuclear war as people fight uh, over the, 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 the amount of privation, relative privation that it pr uh, produces. And so the ninth chapter of On Dimensional Man is basically de devoted to this idea of what I would call a um, sustainable capitalism. And I don't know, I would love to find out, so if you know or have a smoking gun piece of evidence, I'd love to see it, um, whether or not uh, Klaus Schwab or Henry Kissinger um, or even the, the Chinese going into the 1970s were fully aware of. It's one to say, you can say, of course, Kissinger was at Harvard. He probably read Marcuse. That's not enough. Is there some hard evidence? Is there a citation? If you know of a citation where Kissinger is like, look, Marcuse said that capitalism is not sustainable, so we're going to do blah, blah, blah. That would be like a smoking gun piece of evidence. That would be just unbelievable. Or Schwab. Schwab would be even better, frankly. Um, but I think Schwab has been very careful and in hiding uh, his relationships there. 
So at any rate, that's the model is this distributist model. And like I said in that previous podcast, the way that it's going to work is through a corporate subsidiarity program. So you're going to have big, giant corporations that basically own everything, and they're going to have subsidiary corporations, and that's going to trickle on down so that we all have to do the agenda. At the center is the stakeholder council or whatever they're going to call it. That's the biggest top monopolistic leaders working together to decide the stakeholder agenda for all of the stakeholders in all of the world. And the corporations are all subsidiary to their biggest corporations, which are probably going to be like BlackRock, Vanguard, and so on, that are all mutually owned by one another. And this weird corporate collusion that somehow isn't considered to be a gigantic monopoly corporation, even though it is, through subsidiarity. Now, the trick is that what you actually have in China is that the CCP is the top corporation, and you have this exact same model. Uh, The CCP is the top corporation in some sense in China, and then all of the corporations doing business in China are also subsidiary to it. So what you have is a a corporate subsidiary model in order to solve the problem of production that socialism can't solve, but with the central control and the distributism at the heart of the whole thing. Now, that's not only the case that uh, socialism isn't the only way to do distributism, but that's the model that the ESG program, that's the S and ESG really, uh, has chosen. And so we do have this distributist model and um, ESG is at the heart of it. So what I'm reading to you or what this episode of the podcast is, is I want to go through this document called The Stakeholder Model and ESG uh, that was published at the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Govern- Governance in, um, I think, in 2020. I'm trying to find the date. Yeah, September 14th, 2020. Okay, so um, I'll put a link to it, of course. But Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance published in late 2020, the Stakeholder Model and ESG, laying out literally what the ambition for the ESG model is that we're now actually making progress against. We're fighting back against ESG. We're exposing ESG, and it's actually going well to the point where they're starting to rebrand it. Um, people get frustrated, by the way, and think that forcing them to rebrand these things means they're just going to keep doing it, and we should we should black pill and give up. No, no, no. That's not how it works. Every time they rebrand, several things happen. Number one, they waste a ton of resources having to rebrand, rewrite everything. They have to go scrub old stuff off the internet. They got to produce new stuff. They got to disseminate new stuff. They got to put it out to all the corporations. They got to get all the corporations on board. All those corporations have to now out with the old, in with the new. That's all taking up time, resources, energy, and so on. And secondly, it's also signaling to the people involved at the corporate levels that maybe this isn't going so well. And if you remember, Those people are primarily in the class that I call strivers. They aren't necessarily super moral, but they're only going to chase a good deal. What's in it that's best for them? Well, if it looks like this whole deal is getting shaky, the ESG program, because they have to rebrand it. Oh, no, they have to rebrand it again. And people are really mad and people are catching on to the rebranding. Maybe this isn't the way to go. And maybe a lot of people involved in this are going to get in trouble sooner or later. Sooner or later, the house of cards might come down. And what's going to happen is a lot of these people are going to start getting nervous they're going to jump ship. And if they jump ship, it's to their biggest advantage to start telling on the people that they abandoned. And more and more comes out in the the ESG program. And in fact, the entire uh, neoliberal communism program starts to become, it starts to fall apart. And so 
that's ultimately to our good. So forcing them to rebrand is not good. It costs them a ton. They lose time. They lose trust. They have tons of resources they have to dump into the rebranding. The other thing is, is there are people who are involved in this. It's not like everybody in this is a lockstep committed soldier to the revolution. A lot of them are going along with it because they kind of have to. If it has to keep going through these expensive rebrandings, there are a lot of people who are going along with it and going along with it, and they maybe aren't all in, or maybe they are even skeptical. Their skepticism goes up, their trust goes down, and eventually they start saying, why do I have to do this? And the doubt in this huge program that they're getting dragged along in goes up, and again, the, the thing starts getting more and more rickety and starts to fall apart. You don't defeat an entrenched, organized crime syndicate like with this idea that there's this, you know, I did some action and there's steady progress. I did some action and there's steady progress. The way that it actually works is that it falls apart very slowly and then more or less all at once. And those dynamics that I just talked about are actually the pieces that build up to that all at once critical mass divestment from the program that's going south. And the whole thing falls apart very quickly. Um, they've been building this out for I mean, at a minimum 50 years. So don't get too discouraged that it looks like we're not making progress or just rebranding. That costs them a lot. All this stuff starts becoming a liability. If they have to rebrand ESG, they have all these documents that they published so proudly through the 2010s and this in 2020 and since bragging about how awesome ESG is that are now part of their record. They have to go hide that. Then they get accused of having to hide that stuff. They have to, like I said, they have to rewrite all of it in terms of whatever the new measurement is and put all that out and convince people. It's just, a, it's actually a disaster for them. It's a huge win for us, even if it doesn't feel like a huge win because they're just going to keep trying to do it. Huge expenditure. It is not smooth sailing for them. And it's going to cause people to, to, to get skeptical and others to get scared and jump out. And then it's downward spiral from there. Okay, so this is the, again, Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, September 2020, the stakeholder model in ESG. I want you to understand what Harvard was saying uh, three years ago is what the stakeholder model in ESG looks like, remembering again that this ultimately comes from uh, Klaus Schwab, which is probably to say it comes from Henry Kissinger before Klaus Schwab. I'm checking real quick to see if Klaus Schwab is cited in this, and the answer is no, he is not cited in this. So um, there's probably some effort in, in disguising that. By the way, Klaus Schwab, one more time, was working in this kind of Harvard consortium when this whole thing was cooked up. So this is really, the stakeholder model is really the Harvard model. And with everything going on at Harvard right now, that should tell you a lot more about how crooked it is. Okay, so it starts with an introduction. In August 2019, the Business Roundtable released its new stakeholder model of the revised purpose of the corporation, stating explicitly that businesses exist to serve multiple stakeholders, including customers, employees, communities, the environment, and suppliers, in addition to shareholders. Okay, so they're telling you straight up front that the business roundtable gathered in 2019, a year before this report, specifically to say that the corporation's purpose has to be redefined. The entire purpose of a corporation needs to take on a new model, and that's going to be the, the stakeholder model. Businesses don't exist to serve their shareholders. They exist to serve all of their stakeholders, which includes customers, employees, communities, the environment, and suppliers. So all of those entities, the environment being literally everybody, by the way, has a claim on the corporation. They hold a stake in how the corporate 
environment behaves. It's no longer the shareholders who have their money in the system invested in the corporation. They have their skin in the game who are making the decisions. It's now all the customers, employees, communities, the environment, and suppliers have a stake in the corporation. So it's very important to realize what a big deal this is. They are Harvard is trying to announce by fiat here that thanks to the business roundtable meeting, the purpose of the corporation itself has to be redefined in terms of this new model. They then say this new model was publicly supported by 181 CEOs of major corporations. So this is the standard trick that they always play where they're trying to say, look how many people already agree with us. Those people could be colluding. Those people could have um, made backroom deals. They could be part of the World Economic Forum or you know, some other uh, very elite secret club. That doesn't tell. It's like when four out of five dentists agree that toothpaste is good. Um, so this new model was publicly supported by 181 CEOs of major corporations. It uh, it could have a substantial impact on corporate incentive designs, metrics, and other governance areas as corporations continue or begin to operationalize the stakeholder model into their long-term strategies. As incentive plans are core to reinforcing and communicating the business strategy. Now hold on. Because this incentive stuff is important because this is where you start to see that the incentive structure, if you want to get a good ESG score in the G or governance component, what you have to do is give yourself big bonuses for implementing ESG <laughs> as an executive. Couldn't possibly be more corrupt than that, but literally that's part of it. So that's an incentive structure on CEOs to implement ESG. They personally get paid to do it. There are other incentive structures, um, both carrots and sticks, but that's a very interesting one. And these incentive plans are, they say, core to reinforcing and communicating business strategy. But I want to turn tune you into an important quote by Charlie Munger, who was Warren Buffett's business partner at Berkshire Hathaway until he recently died. I'm not endorsing Charlie Munger. In fact, I know very little about Charlie Munger. I know this quote, however, and I want you to keep this quote in mind a lot, which is, if you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And I might have that paraphrased a little bit. Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome is the general idea. And so here, what they're saying is the way that this is going to work is by designing specifically through corporate governance and related designs and metrics and so on, that they are specifically operationalizing the stakeholder model through changing corporate incentive structures. Um, what it says here to finish the first paragraph is while there are many opinions on the business roundtable statement, the stakeholder model is evolving in both importance and sophistication. That doesn't really say anything of any value. Further, and now everybody go get your, your shot because you're going to have to drink the COVID-19 pandemic, the associated economic impacts and increased focus on social justice illustrate the increasing expectations on and willingness of corporate leaders to address social issues that may extend beyond a traditionally narrower view of the business purpose of the corporation. Given these circumstances, some companies are taking a fresh look at their impact on numerous stakeholder groups and their reinforcing impact on, con on company success. Now, what is that? What, what are they talking about? What are these numerous stakeholder groups? Well, they just said their issues to do with economic impacts and increased focus on social justice, the COVID-19 pandemic, and of course, the environmental stuff lurking somewhere in the background. That's what they're actually talking about, as it turns out. So what they're saying 
very clearly. Remember, they're revamping the entire purpose of the corporation around this, um, is that they want to take a fresh look at their impact on numerous stakeholder groups and their reinforcing impact on company success. In other words, will these impact groups, environmental lobbyists, uh, young people in general, um, BLM activists, and so on, what what kind of PR are they going to generate against your corporation if you're not doing the right thing? Just Stop Oil is a great example. Um and what do they say? For example, we'll increase focus on employee wellness initiatives, enhance the resilience of corporations. Will sustainable supply chains and real estate differentiate a company in both the consumer and talent markets? Or are these practices rapidly becoming baseline expectations of employees, investors, customers, and the broader community? Nowhere in there do they say, or is maybe this a bad idea? They say, are these practices rapidly becoming baseline expectations of who? Your employees, in other words, they won't work for you if you don't do what they want. Investors, you can't get investment unless you're doing all the right uh, ESGBS. Customers, customers won't buy from your company unless it's um, responsible enough and in ESG terms and the broader community. So there's your pressure campaigns and other things. The answers to these questions are beyond the scope of our expertise, but these and similar questions are at the center of the discussion on ESG metrics and their applicability to incentive compensation. So what they're trying to do is say that the incentive compensation means that they're going to pay executives to do this, to implement this, um, which is how basically they got a lot of it to get implemented. There, Like I said, there are other carrots and sticks, including access to, to capital, listing in the, in the various... Uh, index funds and so on, directly getting pressured from, you know, majority ownership through these 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 passive investment firms and so on. There are other other aspects, but corporate incentive compensation, executive uh, should say compensation as incentives, tells you why they're implementing this in so many cases. It says if the stakeholder model represents an emerging model for the strategic vision of a company, ESG, meaning environmental, social, and governance metrics, can be used to assess and measure company performance and its relative positioning on a range of topics relevant to the broader set of company stakeholders, not shareholders, it's not about making money anymore, in the same way that financial mes- metrics assess company performance for shareholders. See, it's something completely different now. They have to take into all of these things, like... Uh, the baseline expectations for employees, investors, customers, broader community, COVID-19, social justice, environmental stuff, all that has to go into there because they're going to do some kind of a broader performance measurement under ESG, which involves things like ecological accounting and social justice metrics like the corporate equality index and so on. So they can position the company in this stakeholder model that's not just about making money for the actual investors, which is the shareholder model. It says this post, it's technically a blog post, will address at a conceptual level key questions and guidelines for assessing a company's readiness for and potential approach to implementing ESG metrics and goals in executive incentive programs. Yet again, let me stress that this is about incentivizing executives to implement it Uh, into the emerging paradigm of ESG-focused goals in the context of the evolving stakeholder model. So are you picking up what they're laying down? I hope you're picking up what they're laying down because this is is the new model that uh, that they want all corporations to go on to, which is to follow all of this uh, ESG stuff. 
in the name of stakeholders. This is the same communist trick always. You know, the queer activists do their stuff in the, in the name of the so-called LGBTQ community, which allegedly includes all gay people and all allies and some, like literally like millions of people, but in fact is really a few thousand queer activists and, and, and broken people. Um, this is the same thing. They're going to do all of this stuff in the name of the stakeholders, most of whom have no say whatsoever, no say whatsoever in what's going on. Um, so I am going to cross-reference this right off. I know, uh, I know that this is um, supposed to be the Harvard document, but I'm going to cross-reference this off of uh, off of good old Klaus Schwab here because it's very important to realize that. Um, what they're doing here at Harvard is identical to what Klaus Schwab has in his book, The Great Narrative for a Better Future. And what is The Great Narrative for a Better Future? Well, we have all these crises, these emergency crises that are a major, major problem. And they're really a disaster in the making. And, you know, climate change, pandemics, cyber attacks, the velocity of change, blah, 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 all this. And it's really... Um, imperative that we could we can see an optimistic future by having greater global cooperation greater global uh you know uh handing over the power cooperation in collaboration are the words that they use but what they mean is centralization is the word i was looking for centralization of power in the hands of um the the stakeholder council uh, in the hands of the top experts of, you know, Zivold, as it were. I'm trying to find the spot, by the way, also. I'm filibustering a minute while I try to find the spot of of um, where Klaus describes this in the, in the great narrative. Okay, so I'll read actually a few paragraphs from him. Uh, it thus took almost 50 years. This is Klaus Schwab in, in the great narrative for a better future. It, took, it thus took almost 50 years to vindicate the idea of stakeholder capitalism. So don't get the idea that Harvard invented this in 2020. It's 50 years old when he was publishing this in, in, in uh, 22 because Klaus proposed it to the world in 71. Uh, so that is to acknowledge that the purpose of an economy, the purpose of an economy is to serve society and to recognize that no business can succeed in the long term without serving its workers and communities. The World Economic Forum took the U.S. Business Roundtable Declaration, that's the exact same thing we're talking about here, uh, as an opportunity to refresh the original Davos Manifesto and expand it by incorporating some of today's emerging issues. This resulted in the Davos Manifesto 2020. So guess what? These two documents are working hand in hand. The Business Roundtable Declaration, which is exact from 2019, which is exactly what this Harvard thing is citing, as its, as its motivation, is what also led to the Davos Manifesto 2020 getting rewritten. What Klaus says is it reiterates the fundamental importance of stakeholder responsibility. So it's not about you as a stakeholder and what you want or get out of the corporation. It's your responsibilities. Uh, stakeholder responsibility stating that the universal, quote, purpose of a company is to engage all its stakeholders in shared and sustained value creation. Now, remember, they define value in a very expansive way. It's not material value, commodity value, money value, wealth. It's this abstruse notion of value or wealth that includes leisure time, relationship quality, beauty, beauty of nature, um, all these other kind of abstract things. 
that come in under well-being economies and uh, uh, ecological accounting, which of course means they're going to make up numbers and tell you that, you know, while you own nothing that you're happy. They're just going to make up numbers to tell you that you're happy and gaslight you into believing it. He says it also highlights other important corporate principles. One, to accept and support fair competition and a level playing field and to have zero tolerance for corruption. We just don't believe that because literally the G score is in your, your ESG score component G is increased by giving yourself bonuses for implementing ESG. That's literally corruption. So that's just a lie. Two, to consider a company's suppliers as true partners in value creation and to integrate respect for human rights into the entire supply chain. That's just Marxism, right? So it's the worker does all the work. So the worker should have a share and then blah, blah, blah. Now it's the supplier provides the material. So the supplier is actually having a share. And if you go down the chain that he's actually talking about in the entire supply chain. It's not just supplier, 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 supplier. Eventually you have the workers or the suppliers of the individual suppliers who are supplying the other companies. So all the way down, we're going to have to consider the company's suppliers as true partners. In other words, this, this is just communism. It's just Marxism with new words and uh, kind of tucked around in a complicated language and one step removed so you can't see it for what it is in its naked form. And then three, to act as a steward of the environmental and material universe for future generations and to consciously protect our biosphere and champion a circular, shared, and regenerative economy. Now, if you don't know what a circular, shared, and regenerative economy is, shared means communism. Let's just cut the BS. Circular economy means that it's an economy that consumes its own waste. If you look at the degrowth communism model, they actually have an emblem for it, or at least the Socialist Monthly Review publishes has published this uh, particular graphic in, in conjunction with it. It shows the circular economy as a circle in the middle, and then it shows the existing economy literally as a downward spiral into that circle. So it's supposed to be a circular, steady-state economy that produces nothing new and consumes only what it produces, which is all recycled. This is why in the Absolute Zero document that we covered in another episode of the podcast, you see things like no new steel creation, all steel will be recycled, no new cement creation, blah, blah, blah. Everything has to be recycled in this circular economy. All waste products become, there's no new extraction. It's just everything gets endlessly recycled and reused in a circular fashion. That's the model. And what this monthly review image of degrowth communism literally is then is a circle. That's your steady state circular economy at the middle. That's the target. And then a the existing economy spiraling down to it. In other words, it's the existing economy going down the drain. And if you think that this circular economy thing is going to work, let me disabuse you of such a fantasy. First of all, it's just not going to work. Recycling is not infinite. There is loss every time you recycle. There's material loss. So if you recycle a quantity of steel, some of that steel during the process of heating it and then shaping it again, which is part of the recycling process, hardens a scale on the outside of the material. That scale is useless and has to be scraped off. It's not easily recoverable. You actually would have to smelt it again. And so you actually lose some steel every time. It turns out you also can't recycle steel because of the very precise uh, chemistry involved in doing it. It's not easy to recycle steel. And from what I've been told, it's not even possible, though this isn't my field, to recycle steel to the highest level of quality that we actually are producing steel uh, to do high-level you know, building projects and things today. Um, it's just 
this isn't, it's just not real. The circular economy is not real. But that, of course, is point number three of corporate responsibility under the stakeholder model. It says, in a nod to the ongoing fourth industrial revolution, in English, that's fourth industrial revolution, which is what he believes is happening as we um, be turn everything into the internet, including you, uh, and the technological changes engulfing us, it adds new principles. So the circular economy wasn't a new principle, but this is a new principle. One, to ensure the safe, ethical, and efficient use of data. In other words, they're going to use data to control the world, meaning your data. Uh, data are the new oil in the sense that um, they're going to mine data out of people to control people because controlling people is going to be the most valuable commodity. And then they'll pay you a universal basic income based on how much data they can extract out of you because your data is valuable uh, so they can know how to control you and other people like you. Two, to foster continued employability through ongoing upskilling and reskilling. That's just um, corporate gobbledygook. Three, to keep the digital ecosystem in which a company operates reliable and trustworthy. And that's going to require central control of the internet is what that's going to mean. So all your shutting down misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and then what we're going to see in the coming months or years of preventing cyber attacks is all going to be relevant to that. And then four, to make customers fully aware of the functionality of its products and services, including adverse implications or negative externalities. In other words, to make people feel guilty about everything so they can complain and accept a stakeholder view of things. He says, nowadays, business leaders no longer consider the improvement of stakeholder value as an option. See, so what he's saying is that business leaders, there's a whole movement already happening. Business leaders have already abandoned the shareholder model. They're now in the stakeholder model. They don't longer see this as an option. It's just what's happening. It sounds like Mark Cuban again. For all the reasons expanded in other parts of this book, they know that there is no alternative way forward. Yeah, bullshit. It's called the stakeholder model. We're already doing it. But the idea is to create a mystique of inevitability. That is the reason why, in the coming years, measuring ESG performance will be the gold standard of business adherence to stakeholder value. This was written in 22. How you doing today, Klaus? Because we've broken ESG, and it's going to break all the way soon. He says, many businesses do not have an interest in making the world better. Uh-oh. That's why they have to make it measuring ESG performance will be the gold standard of business adherence to stakeholder value, which is what the Harvard document we're reading is about. So be, why? Because many businesses do not have an interest in making the world better, and some will be a, be tempted to engage in green or woke washing, which means pretending to be more environmental or woke. But they'll be forced, Klaus says, to commit to ESG because ES, measuring ESG performance will become the gold standard of business adherence to stakeholder value. They'll be forced to commit to ESG, and ultimately, all the commitments will be put to the test by government action and societal pressure. Okay, so that's the business side of this, or part of it, I'm going to keep going with Klaus, we're going to come back to the Harvard document, but when they say that they want to remake the fundamental purpose of the corporation, this evil tyranny is that, that Klaus Schwab's describing is what they're talking about. Remember, this link between that and this is not arbitrary. They're both based off of the same roundtable discussion, or, or document, I guess. Klaus is contrary to shareholder capitalism that always saw government as the source of all evils. Stakeholder capitalism welcomes the idea of legislative action to define with precision the benchmarks for ESG reporting and performance. In other words, they want a collusion between government and big business. In other words, to create a corrupt oligarchical system of regulatory capture that benefits the monopolies that get to rise to the top because of their loyalty to the ESG system in the corporate hunger games. 
What are the corporate hunger games? That's what's happening right now, using ESG and DEI and so on to pressure the corporations to adopt actually destructive policies for themselves so that only the most loyal will be floated along, carried along, and they get to be the monopoly heads in the future stakeholder model. Isn't that interesting that um, his, his point here is that a fusion together of the state of the public and the private sector into a single hyphenated public private sector is the mechanism by which corporations, what was his word, will be forced to commit to ESG. And ultimately, all the commitments will be put to the test by government action and societal pressure. So those are the two levers. We're going to get to those. He says there is nothing wrong with governments creating the right incentives, there's our monger again, and issuing the appropriate norms for responsible behavior, particularly when they represent the choice expressed by citizens in free elections. So this is <laughs> citizens in free elections. Remember that if you disenfranchise all of the bourgeois elements, like Lenin said and Mao said and Stalin said, then you can have true democracy. Well, that's kind of the problem here. If you can get the citizens to all agree then it's all backed by what the citizens want. Then the government can then add in all this power over people's private property, in other words, to control corporations. And the stakeholder model is meant to do that. He says there's nothing wrong with governments creating the right incentives and issuing appropriate norms for responsible responsible behavior, which they, in partnership with the stakeholders, will decide for all the corporations. Remember, we were just reading in the introduction over here about Harvard that it is about creating... um, recreating the purpose of the corporation. For example, where was it that he said? Uh, I want to read the same part here. Um, Given these circumstances, some companies are taking a fresh look at their impact on numerous stakeholder groups and their reinforcing impact on company success. Imagine if you defined company success in terms of accepting the stakeholder model. Oh, no. You'd have this kind of circular situation where... Um, accepting the stakeholder model is good for business, and what's good for business is accepting the stakeholder model uh, because the governments are going to get more and more behind it. But he says especially when they represent choice represented by citizens in free elections. All you have to do is brainwash the people. You think I'm kidding? We'll get to that. That's actually part of his plan. Klaus goes on. He says this then gives them the authority to determine societal rules. That means how business is going to be done. That's a stakeholder. It's a social credit program for corporations. In the same way that companies have an obligation to report their financial results quarterly or annually, depending on the countries and whether they are listed or not, in the not-too-distant future, they will have similar obligation to report on ESG metrics. As a matter of fact, that's happening now. They tried this natural asset company scam, and at the heart of it had ecological accounting. Well, now they didn't get natural asset companies. Now they are trying to push forward and force ecological accounting or ecological reporting to the SEC in the not-too-distant future. They will have a similar obligation to report on ESG metrics. This is all happening while ESG is collapsing, so they're trying to shift the focus off of ESG specifically and shift the focus onto, as an article that just came out said, how do corporations can talk about ESG without talking about ESG. In other words, they have to call it by other names, onto what they're calling ecological reporting mechanisms. He says several initiatives have been undertaken to determine the best way to achieve this. The stakeholder capitalism metrics of the World Economic Forum is a major one. Okay, that sounds like it's probably super not corrupt. Great. 
They will converge toward a standardized ESG performance metrics that works across industries and countries and that is supported by global standard setters. Those are the real stakeholder people, by the way, the global standard setters. That's Bill Gates. That's Larry Fink. That's Klaus Schwab. That's, uh, you know, any of these major corporation uh, oligarchs would be tyrants over the world who will decide what the global standards are, not you as a stakeholder in the system. So stop pretending that you have a stake in something and so they have to listen to you. This is to prevent you from having a say. He says such initiatives tend to be led by business, but a globally accepted system of sustainability reporting will be a a concerted effort of business, governments, regulators, and the official accounting community and voluntary standard setters. Those are the different people we have to break on this. Businesses have to be made to think that this is a scam that's going to cost them money and maybe send people to jail for participation in corporate collusion. Governments need to be stopped from doing this. It needs to be found to be illegal. We need to stop electing people who are pushing for it, kind of like what Klaus said. Regulators need to be uh, investigated for how they're contributing to this gigantic regulatory capture scheme and maybe disempowered or, or thrown out. The official accounting community... That's his next thing he lists. Yeah, they're adopting, they're they're moving away from um, what they call generally accepted practices, uh, generally accepted accounting practices. They're moving away from those and into this ecological accounting where they literally make up numbers like how much a fish is worth to the Gulf of Mexico if you leave it in it instead of catching it and hauling it out and selling it on the fish market. Um, and of course, what are they going to do? They're going to make up a gigantic number. They're going to say that the marlin or whatever is worth like a trillion dollars to the freaking ocean if you leave it alone. Not really. They'll probably say it's worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, far more than its market value. And so they will award themselves by seizing control of the the, the waterways or the fisheries or whatever. Else. They will afford or assign themselves gigantic amounts of value. This was a natural asset company scheme. Uh, value creation by not letting people go out and catch fish. Literally, that's, I mean, it's it's fish, it's water, it's air, it's it's energy, it's forests, it's farms, everything. And he's saying that they, it's also like benign sounding. It's just the official accounting community and voluntary standard setters. The official accounting community is shifting this bogus voodoo ecological accounting to create the ability to do this. This isn't actually small. It's actually huge. And we can go after that and break it so that we stick to generally accepted accounting principles and shareholder models of economic prosperity. Um, Corporate governance, that's super important right now. Breaking the stakeholder model and breaking voodoo economics and accounting is key to us making sure that we can retain our liberty. He says, in the end, governments will make the last call for setting the legal obligations, targets, and incentives around ESG standards and performance proposed by business. Why in the world would businesses agree to this? Because the ones at the top of the stakeholder model are going in a revolving door in the public hyphen private sector, not public or private, the single public private sector. They, in fact, they are de facto part of the government. Remember when they reported that Larry Fink was kind of like the fourth branch of government in the United States? Oh, that's why they would go along with it. Because what did he say at the top of the paragraph? Contrary to stakeholder capital, sorry, contrary to shareholder capitalism that always saw government as a source of all evils, stakeholder capitalism welcomes the idea of government activity to define with precision the benchmarks for ESG reporting and performance. So the corporations are going along with it because they're the sold, they're the bought in or sold out, whichever way you want to put it. Corporations who are 
going to become the standard setters, the global standard setters, that's them, not you, who are working hand in glove with the government to do a gigantic public-private partnership uh, scam that destroys the public sector and the private sector and replaces it by a crony capitalist, um, frankly, distributist model where they get to be the distributors. That's why. So in the end, the governments, but the governments are working hand in glove with the stakeholders who are their corrupt crony buddies at the top of the corporations, will make the last call for setting legal obligations, targets, and incentives around ESG standards and performance proposed by business. See, there's the proposed by business part at the end. The governments will set the standards proposed by business. Oh, that's how it works. They will also ensure that stakeholder value is compatible with a rigorously defined concept of societal and planetary value. So there's your well-being economy and your ecological accounting that they're trying to switch everything to. That's, oh shit, degrowth communism. So the ESG program is going to be forced onto the corporate environment by the stakeholders working in collusion with governments, creating top-down power, top-down pressure to force them into a communist well-being and ecological accounting societal and planetary value scheme. In parallel, however, Klaus tells us, and this is what's relevant to what we just read over here on the on the stakeholder model document from Harvard. Remember because it said that, um, where did it say all the, the, the people are going to support this? Um, the increasing expectations on and willingness of corporate leaders to address uh, social issues may extend beyond a traditionally narrow view of the business purpose of the corporation, fresh look, uh, company success. It's all about how they're going to pay attention to what the stakeholders want all of a sudden or what the people, um, what were the questions that they asked? Uh, let me see real quick. Will sustainable supply chains and real estate differentiate a company in both the consumer and talent markets, or are these practices rapidly becoming baseline expectations of, sub, of employees, investors, customers, and the broader community, right? So that was the money quote. Well, that's in the Harvard document over here in Klaus in The Great Narrative. He says, in parallel, societal pressure and rising activism will accelerate the pace at which companies embrace stakeholder value and will force the reluctant ones to convert to the cause. Well, that's what's in the Harvard document. Oh my gosh. Just not with the word force. There is ample evidence, Klaus says, that consumers increasingly favor products and services from companies that are more ESG compliant. That's what we heard in the Harvard document. Accordingly, CEOs now consider that adopting sustainable practices is the new price of entry to compete. Sounds like Mark Cuban, but that's also what we saw in the document. We have to pay attention to what the employees want, what the customers want, what all these other stakeholders that are not the shareholders who actually have skin in the game. Klaus says this trend will amplify as millennials and Gen Z acquire greater prominence in the workforce. The young generations continually hammer home the truth that they have a majority stake in what the future yields because environmental degradation, climate change, and rising inequalities will have a disproportionate impact in their lifetimes. The latter already represents a major impediment in terms of accessing decent housing. So that's why housing is so friggin' expensive, guys. It's a manufactured housing crisis so they can freak out millennials and Gen Z so they'll become radicals for this stupid program. Don't you get this? Do you not understand what's going on? But what they've done is they've brainwashed them into thinking that there's social justice issues, environmental degradation, climate change, rising inequalities everywhere. And so their whole future is, is a disaster. And if you don't go, and they're using social emotional learning in the schools to do it. And when you brainwash them into this, they'll demand it. But that's what's in the Harvard document. It's amazing that that's what's in the Harvard document. Um, the part where it says something about uh, employees, um, 
that we just read about. It, it, it's the same model. These are the same people. But this is Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum saying that not only will the government and the top largest monopolistic corporations working in collusion force everybody into the ESG model, the young people are going to also, because they're brainwashed, to have existential fear about environmental degradation, climate change, rising inequality. He says in light of this, business adherence to ESG considerations will become increasingly relevant to sustainable value creation. The price of not doing so will just be too high in terms of the wrath of activists, both social and investors. Doesn't that sound exactly like that second paragraph of this document? Let's just look at that again. Further, the COVID-19 pandemic, the associated economic impacts, and the increased focus on social justice illustrate the increasing expectations on and willingness of corporate leaders to address social issues that makes them beyond a traditionally narrow view of the business purpose of the corporation. Given these circumstances, some companies are taking a fresh look at their impact on numerous stakeholder groups and their reinforcing impact on company success. For example, will increase focus on employee wellness initiatives enhance the resilience of corporations? Will sustainable supply chains and real estate differentiate a company in both the consumer and talent markets? Or will these practices or are these practices rapidly becoming baseline expectations of employees, investors, customers, and the broader community? So that was the Harvard document. And then what do we have right here? Is that if corporations don't go along, the price of not doing so will just be too high in terms of the wrath of activists, both social and investors. That's Klaus Schwab. He goes on to say, The above doesn't mean that business should become involved in every social or environmental issue. However, it suggests that when a company has a stake and its actions can exert meaningful and positive change, it should. Remember that he he's already said that they're going to be forced from top down and bottom up here. So it should. Since, as argued consistently through these pages, global challenges require global and concerted response, so that's the great narrative, why wouldn't business play its role? Now, this sounds obvious, Klaus says, but it may require going beyond mere stakeholder value. Behind the stakeholder concept lies a basic recognition that, in our interdependent world, global challenges cannot be resolved by any particular group alone. We all have to come together in the collective a collaborative, right, communist, effort between government, civil society, and business. The essence of public-private cooperation is required. This means that stakeholder responsibility must be exercised both at the micro level, the corporate level, and the macro level, globally. This idea of global corporate citizenship, ding, is ensconced in the work that the World Economic Forum has been pursuing for decades. As expressed in an article published in 2008, global corporate citizenship, quote, expresses the conviction that companies not only must be engaged with their stakeholders, but are themselves stakeholders alongside government and civil society. International business leaders must fully commit to sustainable development and address paramount global challenges, including climate change, the provision of public health care, energy conservation, and the management of resources. Okay, end quote. So what Klaus is saying there is that the ESG program is designed to create global corporate citizenship, or sorry, corporate global citizenship. So the corporations are being considered like citizens in a global society, and they're the government of it. 
So the ESG stakeholder people are going to be the government, and then you have all the corporations operating in a subsidiary fashion, just like I said before, that are now uh, its citizens, and it's a global citizenship that's based off of the Sustainable Development Goals uh, of United Nations Agenda 2030, and, you know... <laughs> must fully commit to sustainable development and address paramount global challenges, including climate change, provision of public health care, energy conservation, and the management of resources. So in other words, what he's saying is that if you want to be a corporation in the new world that he's trying to create through the force of top-down government plus uh, monopolistic corporate collusion and the force of bottom-up social activism, both in terms of uh, people and investors— which they're centering in a youth brainwashing program to think this way, particularly located in the millennial generation. Gen Z is not going as well for them, I don't think. I think we are reaching Gen Z better than they had hoped. Um, that, that what's going to happen, if you want to be part of the new world order, you've got to be ESG compliant. So you're going to be forced, not just in two dimensions, but three, top down, bottom up, and inside out. Uh, you're going to have to change all of your values as well. And if you don't, you're not going to get to be part of the global citizenship model for corporations, or if you're an individual, the global citizenship model that they're pushing independently and teaching already in our schools. Global citizenship is going to be the one of the next big hot things that James is a, two years around the corner for you. Let me just tell you, we should start doing it now. He says, Klaus says, the ultimate role of business, sorry, I won't do it in German. The ultimate role of business in society remains to do business, but global corporate citizenship is an extension of the stakeholder concept. It involves the corporate, in other words, the model that China is running, the CCP is running, needs to be global. And that is called global corporate citizenship, which is a corporate subsidiarity model affecting communist distributism. This is the model. This is the whole thing. This is the whole game. ESG is designed to get the West on the same program. Rather than having the government on top, the collusion of corporations is on top, but they're still coordinating with one another, just like in China. So it's, like I said, it's communistic neoliberalism or neoliberal communism, whatever you want to call it. And it's the other way around in China. So he says it's a global corporate citizenship as an extension of the stakeholder concept. It involves the corporation acting as a stakeholder in the global society in conjunction with government and civil society. And it's a notion that can be considered as a long-term investment. Since companies depend on the natural and social ecosystem in which they operate, surely it is in their best interests, their ultimate interests, I'm sorry, to look to the well-being of that same ecosystem when it is beset by so many problems. In fact, he says it's more than an interest, it's an absolute necessity. Listen to the urgency, to the conviction, to the absolute lack of, um, of, any, of, of, of any flexibility or liberty. This is total authoritarian, essentially totalitarianism. He says companies today face an existential choice. Either they wholeheartedly embrace stakeholder capitalism and subscribe to the responsibilities that come with it by actively taking steps to meet social and government goals, or they stick to an outdated shareholder capitalism that prioritizes short-term profits over everything else and wait for employees, clients, and voters to force change on them from the outside. That's 
the model Klaus is talking about. And I didn't even talk about the part where it's all about uh, remaking the uh, stakeholder capitalism is all about remaking, rewriting the social contract, ultimately, uh, which he also attributes to the youth primarily doing that or being successful in doing that. So the idea is that everything in society is going to focus in around this stakeholder model uh, and force it on corporations. And that's what Harvard's actually talking about. Now that we have some actual background from Klaus. Let's see what Harvard says the background is. He says, the business roundtable statement, we're now talking Harvard, we're not talking Klaus. The business roundtable statement drew significant interest from the press and corporate governance community, (laughs) the World Economic Forum. That's not in here though. As it was viewed by many, some investors, the media, academics, and some legal commentators as social and economic enhancement to or replacement of the concept of shareholder primacy, as popularized by Milton Friedman and supported by many institutional investors and their advisors. Others viewed it as a contradiction to or a distraction from the very successful shareholder model which has created prosperity over the decades for shareholders and many other stakeholders. So let's acknowledge what they're acknowledging here. They're saying that the shareholder model has been extremely successful at actually creating stakeholder benefit. The entire society starts getting better when it's prosperous and the shareholder model has been extremely good at making prosperity because the people invested and have a stake in the game are the ones to whom the businesses themselves owe responsibility. We call that uh, shareholder responsibility or fiduciary responsibility. What they're trying to do with the stakeholder thing is to shift that out and so that their their fealty is actually to, quote-unquote, everybody, this, the community of global citizens more specifically, which if you're not on board, you're not one, as Klaus said, and then um, to make them happy instead, the, the, the leadership of it, the technocrats, the experts. And so they're acknowledging that, in fact, the shareholder model has been extremely successful. And they are now wanting to shift away from that, uh, away from shareholder primacy and for business and reorganize business around stakeholder primacy, where the stakeholders are everybody who are represented by these global uh, stakeholder leaders which is like Bill Gates and the rest of the would-be technocrats. Harvard says, pragmatically, the business roundtable statement may be a continued evolution of corporate culture and strategy that seeks to place more direct focus on the role that stakeholders have long played in the corporation from the corporate governance management and board perspectives. This sentiment is reflected in the member quotes included in the Business Roundtable's release, as well as a recent Fortune CEO survey in which a majority of CEOs surveyed, 63%, quote, agree with the Business Roundtable's statement and believe most good companies have always operated that way, end quote. Let me play the SEL card (laughs) or any other communist thing. Communists believe that The thing that they want to do that's crooked is what's always already happening, but what's already happening is happening in a disorganized way that favors uh, illegitimate interests. So they should be allowed to do the crooked, awful thing, but with their allegedly, you know, noble and good purposes and more organized system. For example, if you read the Handbook of Social-Emotional Learning, they're very, very clear that social and emotional learning thing uh, objectives are always happening in schools, but in a disorganized and uncoordinated fashion. So what you need is a uh, organized and um, coordinated approach to doing social-emotional learning, turning it not just into a class, but integrating it into the entire school intentionally, 
in order to uh, take full advantage of the social and emotional learning that used to be called the hidden curriculum, the kind of secondary back, you know, teaching people to be respectful, social, um, you know, norms and so on. We're going to put that front and center. And we're going to do it in an organized fashion. That's their argument. It's always happening. So we need to do it in our organized fashion. But what they are doing is actually using that as an excuse to do brainwashing. <laughs> the social emotional learning is brainwashing. But they would tell you if you caught them on that and could prove, which I don't think is that hard, that it is brainwashing, they're going to turn around and say, well, all education is brainwashing, really. And when you take your kids to church, that's brainwashing. And when you raise them at home, that's brainwashing. And what's already happening in the schools is brainwashing. So of course, we're going to brainwash. This thing that we want to do, which is brainwash the kids or social emotional learning, or in this case, uh, integrate these demands on environmental and social responsibility in certain uh, government hierarchical models, they say, well, it's already happening. But what they're not telling you is that the very specific program that's being implemented is not at all happening and hasn't been happening. It's just something that the, the fact that uh, corporations have paid attention to these things in the past in a kind of a organic fashion um, turns out to be real. So this is communism marrying a truth and a lie. The truth is that, yeah, corporations have cared somewhat about environmental and, and social responsibility and governance models, but in an organic way. They have not done so in a coordinated way that's meant to force them into corporate hunger games so that they can become uh, corporate global citizens according to Klaus Schwab's definition. So it's not that good companies have always operated this way. Again, I, I bring you back to culturally relevant teaching, which was created by Gloria Ladson Billings, who was pushing for critical race theory. And literally, Paulo Freire's, um, Freire, I said that wrong, uh, his critical pedagogy model to be brought in to schools, but under a different name so that people wouldn't be quite so clear on what it is. And what she, she called it was culturally relevant teaching. But the title of the paper in which she argued for culturally relevant teaching in 1995 was, and I quote, but that's just good teaching. You can imagine Harvard publishing an article, but that's just good business, defining the or defending the ESG model, which is not good business. And the evidence is mounting up that it's not good business, which they're now saying, oh, it's going badly, not because of uh, it being bad business, but or literally corruption, uh, but instead because um, people like Ron DeSantis and the conservatives are going after it and destroying value. We are now literally, by the way, there was an article the other day that came out, and I forgot which one, Bloomberg or, or Fortune or something, calling us that are challenging ESG economic terrorists for destroying trillions of dollars in value, allegedly. No, they're bad business practices and the exposure thereof is causing the problem. It has nothing to do with us exposing it. This is just like how I got accused of attacking the university by exposing it with a grievance studies affair. Do you see how this trick just keeps coming up again and again and again and again? So here they quote some BS because it creates the illusion of consensus and there's consensus. So we're all going to go along with it. 181 CEOs said, well, here, 63% of the, of the uh, fortune CEO surveys, uh, said that they agree with the business roundtable statement and believe most good companies have always operated that way. Um, this is a typical communist trick, and we shouldn't fall for it. We should learn to see through it. You don't actually have to go along with everybody if they're wrong. You frankly just don't. But anyway, the, the article continues. In this context, the business roundtable statement serves to enhance, clarify, and substantially debate the sometimes counterproductive dichotomy of shareholders versus stakeholders. ESG metrics applied to this clarified purpose of the corporation provide the quantifiable and generally accepted means to measure the more nuanced view of company performance. Okay, guys, red flag. 
the more nuanced view versus the thing that's been working really, really, really well and the thing that looks a little bit sus, the more nuanced view means they're going to fill you with communist bullshit about why it supposedly works, even though with your own eyes you can see that it doesn't work. That's the more nuanced view. So when you see words like nuanced or complicated, those are red flags in communist land. That means that what they're going to say is only the enlightened can really understand this and you don't have a nuanced enough view or a sophisticated enough view. Remember that was a word that showed up or an enlightened view of how things really work. So they try to explain it a little bit. The stakeholder value creation chain below is a model developed by pay governance to illustrate the intersection of ESG strategy, the stakeholder model, and the creation of firm value. So I told you they're going to try to blind you with bullshit. They created a model. It's clearly like this is how it's supposed to work in um, theory. <laughs> okay. The model captures the reinforcing carryover effect of stakeholders' contributions to the economic success of the company. An example of a, quote, positive externality is that many employees want to work for environmentally friendly companies, and the increased engagement of those employees may also increase productivity, customer satisfaction, etc. So you'll own nothing and you'll be happy as a uh, reason why things work out better. So if you have a good environmental company, you're going to attract more people who are excited to work there because they're happy to be doing the right thing or something. That works as long as the cult religion around climate change lasts by the way, and only kind of, because activist fatigue sets in. And at the end of the day, after however many months, people are still going to, let me say it the correct way, people are still getting up in the fucking morning and going to fucking work and doing a fucking job. That's how they're going to feel about it after a couple of years. And so that is like the honeymoon period when you get on testosterone, when you try to transition or whatever. Oh yeah, everything's great for a little while. And that's their positive externality. It's a phony bubble that they can point to when it pops up and say, see, look, and get companies hooked into these things to where it's hard to come back later. They say all companies need to balance their stakeholders, including shareholders, long-term interests. It may be, a, they only have to balance that with shareholders because it's costing shareholders money. When they throw that in there, they're telling you, shareholders, they're cheating you. If you are a shareholder, and the company's talking stakeholder stuff, they're cheating you. They brought it up twice in this paragraph that there is something contradictory between shareholders and stakeholders. No kidding. Exactly that's what's going on. Shareholders are getting ripped off and they're getting tricked through this con artistry. They say it may be a greater challenge for economically stressed companies to make long-term investments for other stakeholders than it is for top performing companies to do so. Okay, so what that means is when you're Disney, you have to do it. When you're smaller, we can kind of let you slide a little bit. That's what it means. However, our research and others find that overall, companies manage both short and long-term performance trade-offs efficiently. These findings support optimistic outcomes for this stakeholder value creation chain, which I'm just going to tell you straight out is bullshit. But listen to this. When they say that top-performing companies have an easier time doing this, this is just like saying that rich people should pay more taxes in socialism. It's the exact same thing. The exact same thing. So the big companies, even though there's this conflict, you should eat it because you're really wealthy. You're really succeeding. You're a top performing company. You can eat it. You can, you're privileged. So you need to check your privilege this way. Whereas if you're a developing company or a developing country like China, we can just let you slide on this. 
I'd go through this model, but it's hard to describe a graph, but it's really kind of silly. Um, they have at the top ESG strategy feeding into employees, communities, suppliers, and customers, and shareholders in various ways. And then uh, they just say that there's the positive externality impact of employees, communities, and suppliers dumping into customers somehow. They don't explain how that works at all. They call these intermediate outcomes. And this leads to optimized stakeholder value creation, which then by virtue of arrows that are labeled literally desired results, not observed results, leads to enhanced shareholder value. Shareholders, let me tell you something straight. Let me speak to you more straight than any of the people involved in this, any of the corporate smoke blowers that you've ever spent one minute of your time. I don't care how close you are. I don't care how many deals you've done. I don't care how much you drank together. I don't care how many hookers you bought together. Let me tell you more straight than any of these people will ever tell you. These people are fucking you right now. If you are a shareholder, you should be suing these people. They are your enemy they are destroying you and giving you a stupid graph that looks like it was made on PowerPoint by a MBA student out of a third-tier university somehow saying that there's these magical positive externality impacts leading into customers that somehow creates optimized stakeholder value creation as a desired result that will enhance shareholder value. This is, this is their brilliant Harvard graph for how the stakeholder value creation chain works. This is so BS. So they're screwing you. Start thinking about that. Really start thinking about that. They say these developments and interest in this model of value creation generally have prompted an increase in questions about whether and how to include ESG metrics and incentive plans. That's the whole point of this document is to put it in the incentive plans, which is something that Klaus Schwab talked about. Below, we, put, we provide some key questions and guidelines for assessing a company's readiness and potential for, an implement, for implementing ESG metrics in executive compensation incentive programs. So we've talked in the past about lots of reasons why ESG is getting implemented. Now it's the super corrupt one. And the simple expression of it, and that's what the rest of this document is about, is that the G score in ESG governance is partly determined by you giving yourself as a corporate executive bonuses for implementing ESG. If you are an honest executive or a shareholder, pause and ask yourself this simple question. Is that legit? Is that legit? Is How is that legit? Let's advance the question. How is that legitimate? Your ESG score goes up for implementing ESG and giving yourself a bonus to do so. Is the, could the corruption be more plain? Remember that Klaus said it was about getting rid of corruption? My goodness. So let's see what Harvard has to say about this most corrupt of incentive structures for implementing ESG, which is, we'll raise your score if you give yourself executive bonuses for implementing our plan. Literally as corrupt as it could get. Is your company ready to set or disclose ESG incentive goals? That's a big section. ESG incentive metrics are like any other incentive metric. They should support and reinforce strategy rather than lead it. Companies considering ESG incentive metrics should align planning with the company's social responsibility and environmental strategies, reporting, and goals. Another essential factor in determining readiness is the measurability slash quantification of the specific ESG issue. So I'm not sure that it ever said what makes you ready for this, but they're going to tell you in different tiers, uh, three different tiers, in fact, 
how to know why it's supposed to benefit you. It says companies will generally follow along a spectrum of readiness to consider adopting and disclosing ESG incentive metrics and goals. Though just the word incentive appearing again and again and again should tell you that this is super corrupt. Okay, so tier one, companies ready to set quantitative ESG goals. Companies with robust environmental sustainability and or social responsibility strategies, including quantifiable metrics and goals like carbon reduction goals, net zero carbon emissions uh, commitments, diversity and inclusion metrics, employee and environmental safety metrics, customer satisfaction, etc. So if you are a corporation like that, then you are ready to set quantitative ESG goals. So what does it require? If you're a top performing company, you need to have carbon reduction goals, net zero carbon emission commitments, diversity and inclusion metrics, employee and environmental safety metrics, customer satisfaction, and so on. The whole woke pantheon. Tier two, companies ready to set qualitative goals. Companies with the, who are they? Who are, so if you're a top performer, you're ready for quantitative goals so you can get locked into the measurement scam, the reporting scam, and be stuck. What if you're not quite there yet? Well, you can know you're a company ready to set a qualitative goal instead if you are a company with evolving, formalized tracking and reporting, but for which ESG matters have been identified as important factors to customers, employees, or other. These companies likely already have plans or goals around ESG factors, for example, leadership in energy and environmental design, certified office space, diversity and inclusion initiatives, renewable power, and emission goals, etc. And then third tier are companies developing an ESG strategy. And they are some companies are at an early stage of developing overall ESG stakeholder strategies. These companies may be best served to focus on developing a strategy for environmental and social impact before considering linking incentive pay to these priorities. So what this actually is about, remember, is incentive pay. So if you have quantitative goals, you need to be having your incentive pay tied to implementing carbon reduction goals, net zero carbon emission commitments, diversity and inclusion metrics, employee and environmental safety metrics, customer satisfaction, and so on. And if you are at the qualitative goals, well, you should be looking at putting, attaching your incentive structure to installing things like leadership in energy and environmental design certified office spaces, again, diversity and inclusion initiatives, renewable power and emissions goals, and so on. So if you're implementing those, you should be considering giving yourselves corporate bonuses. And then if you're not quite there yet, uh, you should probably start developing your ESG strategy before you start tying uh, your own money to it. People might think it's corrupt. It doesn't have all these measurements where you say, oh, no, look at all these measurements. Look at these things we implemented. That's why we get to give ourselves a $3 million bonus at the end of the year. What they tell us is we note it is critically important that these ESG stakeholder metrics and goals be chosen and set with rigor. (laughs) Yeah, right. In the same manner as financial metrics. What that means is they're going to have voodoo well-being and ecological accounting measurements like the corporate equality index score. So it looks rigorous, but it's actually you just doing the agenda. And that's to ensure that the attainment of ESG uh, goals will enhance stakeholder value, not shareholder value, shareholders. You should sue these people and not simply serve as, quote, window dressing or greenwashing. Remember when Klaus said greenwashing and wokewashing? Wow. They have to be real. They have to be commitments. They have to be intentional. Implementing ESG metrics is a company-specific design process, they tell us. For example, some companies may choose to implement qualitative ESG incentive goals. Remember, that means giving yourself more money for doing this, even if they have rigorous ESG factor data and reporting. 
Now, the here's a question for you. Will ESG, this is the next section, will ESG metrics and goals contribute to the company's value creation? Let me short answer this for you. No, 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 it will not. No, it won't. It might kind of in the short term under the cartel environment because everything's super corrupt. But eventually this house of cards is coming down. And in fact, what you're really doing is you're rolling the dice. The answer is, on, in, in, a, in a free enterprise system, the answer is most definitely not. No chance. In fact, it's the opposite of that. However, in the current cor- cartel, um, you're basically going to lose value in order to pay Klaus the gun not to destroy your corporation so you can be part of the, uh, what does he call it, corporate global citizenship model that he's building out. So here's what Harvard tells us. The business case for using ESG incentive metrics is to provide line of sight for the management team to drive the implementation of initiatives that create significant differentiated value for the company or or align with current or emerging stakeholder expectations. So you might make more money, but you might just do things that the agenda wants you to and not make more money. Or you never know. Companies, they say, first must assess which metrics or initiatives will most benefit the company's business and for which stakeholder, uh, sorry, I messed it up. Companies must first assess which metrics or initiatives will most benefit the company's business and for which stakeholders. See, so the shareholders or stakeholders that you used to be the ones you had to care about, but now you have these other ones, and maybe it's the environmental lobby you want to make happy, or maybe it's Papa Klaus you want to make happy, but you've got somebody else you've got to make happy too. So you've got to figure out who you're trying to make happy. Are you paying off the cartel or are you trying to make money for the shareholders? Those are different. They are actually different. They're very different um, stakeholders within the whole stakeholder network. They must also develop challenging goals for these metrics to increase the likelihood of overall value creation. Overall value, like what? Do you mean money? Do you mean shareholder value? No, 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 no. Overall value. What's overall value include? Well, it includes more environmental responsibility so you can feel good about yourself, which is allegedly going to cause these positive externalities. So it's the well-being economy and ecological accounting plus the standard accounting practices relevant to, to GDP or bottom line analysis. So shareholders, I'm telling you, you are getting the screw here. For example, they tell us who are some of these overall value creation stakeholders. In terms of employees, they say, are are employees in the competitive talent market driving the need for differentiated environment or social initiatives? Will initiatives related to overall company sustainability, building sustainability, renewable energy use, and net zero carbon emissions contribute to the company being a best-in-class employer? (laughs) Best-in-class employer? That seems like, okay. Diversity and inclusion and pay equity initiatives have company and social benefits. Do they really? Such as ensuring fair and equitable opportunities to participate and thrive in the corporate system. So they're just blowing smoke and saying basically that because employees something or another that the woke crap is good for them. They they can go brag to their friends that they work at a best-in-class employer where best-in-class is defined in implementing the agenda. And everybody can feel good about themselves. Honeymoon period lasts however many months it lasts, and then they're just going to F and work again. What about customers? They're a stakeholder that we're now caring about. I'm going to shortcut you here. Shareholders aren't even mentioned. They're not even listed. Shareholders are not even mentioned here. Customers. 
Are customer preferences driving the need to differentiate on sustainable supply chains, social justice initiatives, and or the product company environmental footprint? Notice how these are the same things that Klaus Schwab said, that your customers, your employees, your, your supply chain, all of them are going to pressure you to adopt the model. This is what they really mean, is they're building out a cartel environment where everybody's pressuring everybody. It's literally a corporate social credit system. And somehow that's that's value creation, guys, that when the customers are engaging in a sustainable supply chain or social justice initiative activity against your corporate practices, that's creating overall value creation in terms of the well-being economy, sustainability and inclusion, blah, blah, blah long-term sustainability. So let me explain long-term sustainability to you in, you know, cold, simple language. We'll just cut right to the chase. We're going to talk turkey, as they say. What's long-term sustainability? That is a vessel way out into the future where the stakeholder calculation people can make shit up to tell you that that's what you're, you're developing value in terms of something that might happen in 40 years, according to their models. That's what that is. In other words, it's a box. It's a stakeholder box. The future is a stakeholder in your corporation where they get to run models and blow smoke. Remember how the world was going to end like every five years for the last five, like 50 years because of climate change or whatever the hell they tell us. Greta was wrong. AOC was wrong. Polar bears are still here. Glaciers are still on the mountains. Sea level hasn't risen an inch. Obama still got coastal property. Like, what do you... Their COVID-19 models were completely bogus. All their climate change models have to get revamped every year, even with the temperature adjustments they do so that they can pretend that they're more right than they actually are. Like, that's what long-term sustainability is talking about. They have projections out into the future, which the future becomes a stakeholder that they alone can predict with their magical predictions, like with the Club of Rome and their limits to growth predicted we run out of copper in the year 2000. So obviously we have to like get rid of people or something like that. That was the original limits to growth. Uh, it turns out that was long-term sustainability prediction was a little bit wrong, um, consequentially wrong. So that's what that's about. So what you're supposed to ask yourself about, so you can assign your corporate incentives for being a good, a good positive externality producer is our long-term macro environmental factors like carbon emissions, carbon intensity of product, etc., critical to the company's ability to operate in the long term. Let me just tell you, if you're in like virtually any sector, steel, aviation, energy, transportation, shipping, um, literally any industry, hotel, hospitality, tourism, you name it, cruise industry, you name it, doesn't really matter. The answer is, Yes, they are critical. Energy is critical. Producing steel and concrete is critical to the long-term operation of your program. If you have been lied to about this and are confused, let me disabuse you. Yes, long-term macro, quote, environmental factors like carbon emissions, that's a scare word, carbon intensity of project, those things don't matter. Those are the things where they make up BS out into the future to tell you that you have to change what you're doing now. And they're asking you in terms of value, this is stakeholder value creation. Is it critical to your company's ability to operate in the long term? Uh, yes, it is. It actually is. It sure the hell is. And they want you to think it's not. And more than that, it's like the fish thing I told you before. What is the value of you 
using some energy, say, that was produced by burning natural gas and putting carbon emissions into the air? Are you producing concrete, which required you to crush limestone and to make it make it into quicklime by liberating CO2 from the, the, what is it, calcium bicarbonate, so it becomes calcium carbonate or whatever the chemistry is? So that's a carbon-intensive process. Is it critical to your concrete industry to be able to emit CO2? Yeah, you're damn right it is, it turns out. But what they want to tell you is that there's more value in not causing climate change. Trillions of dollars of value, $180 trillion in damages was the number they used to say that it was going to cause. So if we stop climate change, you, that's $180 trillion of made-up value that they claim that you are actually participating in. So the value creation here is actually crushing your business but it's creating abstract value in terms of future value that's not being cost. It's the same thing as a fish. How much does it cost to pull a fish out of the the Gulf of Mexico? Well, you need your equipment, you need your boat, you need your time, you need your expertise, you might need this or that, you know, other stuff. And that gives you a, a cost to, per, to go out and catch a fish. The, the fish is in the Gulf of Mexico. You find the fish, you pull a fish out, you come back, you sell the fish, you make some money to offset your costs and ideally make a little bit of profit. That's the idea of catching fish. But nobody stops to ask how much is the fish worth to stay in the Gulf of Mexico? And that's what this is saying. Long-term sustainability of the Gulf of Mexico requires that fish to stay there. So it's actually worth like $300 million dollars or probably more like $300,000 for the fish to stay in the Gulf. This is what it's saying here with carbon emissions. It is long-term more valuable. The value you're creating is feeling good about the future that's not going to be climate change disaster that they might have made up based on their models. You're not producing real value, but ecological accounting will allow you to create carbon offset credits and all these other phony baloney things that push the agenda that you can then sell and trade and buy and so on and so forth so that you can make basically the equivalent of funny money off of all this that eventually that all falls apart. And they call it long-term sustainability because they want to rub it in your face. So yet again, shareholders, look at what's in front of you. The, the, the next value creation, the fourth value creation thing you're supposed to include. Remember, it has nothing to do with shareholders here, is brand image. Does a company want to be viewed by all constituencies, including those with no direct economic linkage, as positive social and economic as a positive social and economic contributor to society? In other words, do you want the Open Society Foundation to say that you're a bad guy and come in and do uh, the equivalent of activists busting your kneecaps? Brand image. Most people, most of the time, really actually don't care all that much about this stuff. It turns out it just they just don't. They can gin up this whole thing. The millennials are kind of a weird uh, exception because their heads aren't quite screwed on straight. But other than that, most people just don't care. And if they're hungry, the hungrier they get, if the lights go out because there's no energy, I can tell you right now, they're going to stop caring at all. The brand image is the, is the, the, that's good is the brand that's delivering something to them that actually makes their life work. Right now, they're cushy enough to where they can care about these kind of wishy-washy things. But they have huge activist sectors that go out and create bad press for you. You know this is how it works. You know they write corporate hit jobs on you. We all saw what happened to Uber, for example. Um, huge corporate hit job uh, back in, what, I guess 17 or thereabouts. Um, we know they do this. And that was all orchestrated from, you know, freaking taxi uh, union. It was orchestrated literally by like a society for the blind trying to extort them out of money. I mean, it's insane to think that that's organic. So what they're telling you there with brand images, it's a nice 
nice brand image you got there. It would be a shame if the Open Society Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation dumped a bunch of money into activists into wrecking it for you because that's how this game really gets played. It would be a shame if CNN ran story after story after story after story week after week after week after week for the next year until everybody who works for you First of all, your business just drops because because people are like spooked, customers are spooked, and suppliers are like, eh, I don't know. But then your employees become increasingly embarrassed because they're, the, the bad news that they keep reporting on you in this hit job leaks into their friends and families, and they're like, ew, you work for so-and-so? I couldn't work for them. Look at the stuff in the news. That's just horrible. And they create a struggle session environment inside your your your. Uh, company and break it from within. And they know they can do this. They know that they're good at doing this. They know that you know that they're good at doing this. So what the brand image thing is, is them threatening you. Again, shareholders, it is time to blow the whistle on this whole stakeholder model because this is bad stuff. They tell us here at Harvard, though, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to ESG metrics. And companies fall across a spectrum of needs and drivers. That means it's vague, so nobody can actually pin down anything that affect the type of ESG factors that are relevant to short- and long-term business value depending on scale, industry, and stakeholder drivers, like the you know the activist groups coming and busting up your brand, or some complete BS about the carbon impact of you in the future. Every time I buy a plane ticket, I have to see how many pounds or tons or whatever the hell of CO2 it releases, kilograms, I think it tells me, and like I know what a kilogram is, um, that, I, that I'm releasing by flying on the plane, and I'm like, yeah, okay, this is this has got to go. The, your stupid models are not convincing me. The airlines should be pushing back on this crap. That's a tool that the airlines, I guarantee you, are forced to implement in order to get their ESG score to stay up, which they need for other reasons. And what its goal is, is to make some of their customers think, I don't want to take a flight because it increases my carbon footprint. In other words, the airlines are experiencing stakeholder value creation by helping climate change by convincing some of their customers not to buy plane tickets. Think about that. Are you a shareholder? Guess what? There's a fiduciary responsibility lawsuit waiting for you somewhere unless Harvard is successful and these entities are successful in changing the purpose of a corporation. And how are they going to achieve that? Through government action and partnership with the (laughs) executives who are incentivized to implement this stuff by assigning themselves incentive packages, compensation packages, which is what this document is about. Could this be more corrupt? This is ESG, guys. This is how corrupt it is. ESG are three letters that mean corruption. Okay, so conceptual design parameters for structuring incentive goals. This is how you're supposed to structure your incentives. For those companies moving to implement stakeholder and ESG incentive goals for the first time, the design parameters range widely, which is not different than the design process for implementing any incentive metric. See, it's the same as what you already do all the time anyway, except this one just happens to be super corrupt. And you have to give yourself a bonus in order to increase your score, which you need to do other things because it's, you know, getting away from corruptions of all kinds, as Klaus said, and Marxists always lie. For these companies, considering the following questions can help move the prospect of an ESG incentive metric from one idea Uh, Sorry, from an idea to a tangible goal with the potential to create value for the company. Remember, creating value for the company might mean in some abstract sense, not in terms of creating revenue or profit. Notice how they say create value, create value, create value, and they don't say create revenue, create profit. No shit. They're scamming you. They are scamming you. Value means lots of things. It means well-being. It means ecology. It means the future. 
It means positive externalities in terms of employers, or sorry, employees and customers. BS. Straight BS. They are straight scamming you. Not once are words like revenue or profits mentioned here. It doesn't say anything about increasing shareholder return or dividend value for stakeholders. And shareholder return is just one stakeholder variable. Okay, one, quantitative goals versus qualitative milestones. The availability and quality of data from sustainability or social responsibility reports will generally determine whether a company can set a defined quantitative goal. For other companies, lack of available ESG data goals or the company's specific pay philosophy may mean ESG initiatives are best measured by uh, setting annual milestones tailored to selected goals. Remember, the purpose of this section is to say, on what basis are you giving yourself a bonus for implementing ESG so that your G part of your ESG score will go up in a, a clearly not corrupt method? In other words, they're helping you outline the BS you're going to tell yourself and your employees and your shareholders for why you're creating bogus value at the expense of genuine revenue and dividends. Two, selecting metrics aligned with value creation. Unlike financial metrics, hey shareholders, did you hear that? For which robust statistical analyses can help guide the metric selection process, for example, financial correlation analysis, Unlike that, unlike actually real numbers about real money, the link between ESG metrics and company value creation is more nuanced. Oh, okay. And is significantly impacted by industry, operating model, customer and employee perceptions and preferences, etc. In other words, all that vague stuff where they're going to make up fake value, well-being, ecological future, blah, blah, blah. Given this... The, my favorite one is still the positive externalities of employees and customers. Your customer, your employees will be happier to work there because you're doing your ESG stuff. So feel great about giving yourself a huge bonus to implement the agenda. Given this, companies should generally apply a principles-based approach to assess the, the most appropriate metrics for the company as a whole. For example, assessing significance to the organization. What the hell does that mean? Measurability achievability, etc. Notice how, how revenue and profit aren't mentioned. Appendix 1, which I'm not going to drag you through, provides a list of common ESG metrics with illustrative mapping to typical stakeholder impact. In other words, it's a bunch more bullshit. 3. Determining employee participation. Generally, stakeholder and ESG-focused metrics would be implemented for officer and executive level roles. In other words, executives who get to decide whether or not they're going to do this get to give themselves bonuses for doing this. But it's supposedly not corrupt. As this is the employee group that sets company-wide policy impacting the achievement of quantitative ESG goals or qualitative milestones. Alternatively, some companies may choose to implement firm-wide ESG incentive metrics to reinforce the positive employee engagement benefits, there's your so-called positive externalities, of the company's ESG strategy or to drive a whole team approach to achieving goals. Shareholders, you should be screaming about this. This is so, so bad. This is the kind of stuff where you should be demanding, you know, people get kicked off the board and out of the executive suite. It's just unbelievable that this is tolerated. Four, determining the range of metric weightings for stakeholder and ESG goals. 
Historically, U.S. companies with existing environmental employee safety and customer service goals, as well as other stakeholder metrics, have been concentrated in the uh, extractive industrial and utility industries. Metric weightings on these goals have ranged from 5% to 20% of annual incentive scorecards. We expect that weighting this... We expect that this weighting range would continue to apply with the remaining 80-plus percent of annual incentives weighting focused on financial metrics. Further, we expect that proxy advisors and shareholders may react adversely to non-financial metrics weighted more than 10 to 20 percent of annual incentive scorecards. So, executives, listen up, shareholders, this is how they're, they're telling. So, executives, only award yourself up to 10 to 20 percent of your total incentive scorecard for doing this because otherwise the shareholders might get pissed off. Shareholders, let me talk to you for a second. You should be pissed off. Five, consider whether to implement shareholder ESG goals in annual versus long-term incentive plans. As noted above, most ESG incentive goals to date have been implemented as weighted metrics in balanced scorecard annual incentive plans for several reasons. However, we have observed increased discussion of whether some goals, particularly greenhouse gas emissions goals, may be better suited to long-term incentives. There is no right answer to this question. Some milestone and quantitative goals are best set on an annual basis given emergency industry sorry, emerging industry, technology, and company developments. Other companies may set a robust long-term plan for which longer-term incentives are a better fit. That's straightforward enough. Don't need to go through too much of that. Six, considering how to operationalize ESG metrics into long-term plans. For companies determining that sustainability or social responsibility goals fit best into the framework of a long-term incentive, those companies will need to consider which vehicles are best to incentivize achievement or strate- uh, strategically important ESG goals. While companies may choose to dedicate a portion of a... Oh, pause. Why is an ESG goal strategically important? Let's play the Jeopardy soundtrack while we try to figure that out. The shareholders with me. Why... Is why is it strategically important to implement ESG goals? Well, let's see. There's a strategy of navigating the business environment captured by the ESG cartel where you can't get great access to credit or you might get your stock delisted from their index funds. Okay, that's corrupt. There might be activist pressures levied against you, these hit campaigns in the media, if you don't play along. So you've got to be strategic and you got to appease the Just Stop Oil people, for example. That's strategic. Oh, lots of corrupt stuff. That's why. Lots of stuff that's made to look spontaneous, like these protests, that's totally paid for by NGOs. It's not spontaneous. Those NGOs are in direct cahoots with the same people forcing you to do this crap, which is allegedly not corrupt, according to Klaus Schwab. While companies may choose to dedicate a portion of a three-year performance share unit plan to an ESG metric, that is, or sorry, for example, weighting a plan 40% relative uh, total shareholder return, 40% rel- uh, revenue growth, and 20% greenhouse gas reduction. So there's your share- your shareholder return just got cut down because it has 20% greenhouse gas reduction now, right? So it used to be that we're going to take our three-year, I guess, plan or whatever, performance share, and it, w- it would have been split maybe between revenue growth and shareholder return, but now we're going to cut both of those down by a little bit so we can add a 20% greenhouse gas reduction program. Shareholders should probably be upset about that. There may be concerns for shareholders and or participants in diluting the finance. Oh, really? There might be concern. Hey, shareholders, you might have concerns. 
or participants in diluting financial and shareholder value focuses on these incentives. So what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to, I haven't read it in a few weeks, so I'm not quite sure what it says next, but I'm going to guess you have to trick them into believing that the greater value, you know, the greater good has some more value in it or something. As an alternative, companies could grant performance restricted stock units vesting at the end of a period of time, for example, three or four years, contingent upon achievement of a long-term rigorous ESG performance milestone. What do those look like? This approach would not dilute the percentage of relative, uh, what is it, total shareholder return and financial-based long-term incentives, which will remain important to shareholders and proxy advisors. Ooh. Okay. So you can actually, you don't have to trick them into believing in greater value creation. You can just use a different program where you award yourself stocks by, uh, so you don't, you don't actually like, you know, reduce the, the payout. Instead, you give yourself stocks, which if you just kind of create more stocks, shareholders, you might want to call these people out on this stuff. Conclusion. As priorities of stakeholders continue to evolve, the priorities of state, this, let, me, let me make a real point about this, a whole podcast about this, that the real danger of ESG isn't what it demands, it's that it can change what it demands. It's that it's arbitrary. But ESG is the demands or priorities of stakeholders. And so what do they tell us here? As the priorities of stakeholders continue to evolve. So what they're telling us is that, guess what? This program will continue to change and ask different things of you at different times. Masks are an important thing for the environment during COVID, but then they're an environmental disaster when they're in the ocean afterwards. Oh my. Kind of get the idea? Defense stocks are a social bad because we don't want to have you know war and stuff until there's a conflict with Ukraine, and then they instantly become ESG good. Tesla, one of the most uh, environmentally responsible companies, great ESG score, everything's on the front line, front end of everything. Elon Musk buys Twitter, starts speaking up about free speech. Next thing you know, it's S-score plummets, and allegedly he's a racist and runs a very corrupt company. And now he's lost like his whole compensation package because it's somehow unfair and unjust or something, which is just like literally straight Jack Ma CCP communism levied against Elon. So as the priorities of the stakeholders continue to evolve, they're going to F you more later. Shareholders, you are one of the few things that can do something about this. But let's just read the conclusion. As priorities of stakeholders continue to evolve and addressing these becomes a strategic imperative, companies may look to include some stakeholder metrics in their compensation programs to emphasize these priorities. As companies and compensation committees discuss stakeholder and ESG-focused incentive metrics, each organization must consider its unique industry, environment, business model, and cultural context. We interpret the Business Roundtable's updated statement of business purpose as a more nuanced perspective on how to create value for all stakeholders, inclusive of shareholders. Notice it's going to increase value in some abstract way. Shareholders are actually going to lose value, or sorry, they're going to lose dividends, but they're going to increase in abstract value, but there's all the stakeholders, all the stakeholders are actually going to increase in value, including shareholders, but the shareholders are going to do so by losing the kind of value that they're actually invested in. Got it? While optimizing profits will remain the business purpose of corporations, the 
business roundtable statement provides support for prioritizing the needs of all stakeholders and driving long-term sustainable success for the business. But that's the opposite of how it began when it said that it was to change the purpose of the corporation. For some companies, implementing incentive metrics, again, this is super corrupt, isn't it? Aligned with this broader context can be an important tool. If you don't understand how this broader context means full-blown distributist communism, I don't know how to help you at this point. The broader context means ecological accounting, uh, future assessment of future the future impacts through various models that the stakeholders get to run and nobody else has any control over. It means um, well-being economy for the happiness of your employees and customers and the society at large. Uh, I think that one of these things right now, like the president Biden is pushing right now, is that people when they fly, so people are stakeholders, right? The customers of airlines are stakeholders and that, and so they would be a lot happier if their children could sit next to them and fly for free. So airlines should be required to give children free airplane tickets next to their parents. Is that going to increase shareholder value? Is that in the best interest of United's business plan or American Airlines business plan or Delta's business? Is that really in the best interest of the business? Is that maximizing shareholder value? Or is that um, taking into account other stakeholders, I'm sorry, in this case, parents with children, and prioritizing them because the government said you have to? Which is what Klaus said is normally business people are like, wait a minute, don't do that. Don't interfere but because that's called shareholder primacy. But now stakeholder model says, no, 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 no. We're going to let the government help us decide what the right thing to do is. So while optimizing profits will remain the business purpose of corporations, it should say within the controlled public-private partnership environment, the business roundtable statement provides support for prioritizing the needs of all stakeholders, like having little kids fly for free now instead of on a child fare ticket uh, on the plane in driving long-term sustainable success for the business. Is that going to, I mean, do airline, is how are airlines going to cover the cost of kids flying for free? Well, they're either going to not cover the cost, in which case they're running on a thin margin often as it is, or, or they're going to start cutting costs by making other things much less expensive, or they're going to pass on the costs to the other people flying and make it more expensive for them. Oh no. For some companies, implementing incentive metrics aligned with this broader context can be an important tool to drive these efforts in both the short and long term. That said, appropriate timing, design, and communication will be critical to ensure effective implementation. See, you're going to have to time it right, organize it right, and communicate it right, or else your shareholders are going to call you out on it. Because what's happening is you, the executive, is deciding to give you, the executive, an incentive to go along with the agenda which is super corrupt. That's this document. It ties straight into good old Klaus Schwab and the great narrative for the better future. This is Harvard Law School. This is ESG. This is the business roundtable. This is what ESG is about. It is a plan to use super corrupt methods to force a super, uh, frankly, degrowth communist or distributist model onto corporations through as Klaus said, and as is in this document, top-down, bottom-up, and inside-out pressure 
They are going to target a fusion of the corporations and the government to force behaviors in alignment with ESG. That was Klaus's word, force. That rhymes with uh, Larry Fink's <laughs> remark that he says that corporations don't always want to do these things, but sometimes you have to force behaviors through incentive structures, which is exactly what this is, including the corrupt incentive structure to pay yourself more for adopting the corrupt incentive structure. Then there's the bottom-up pressure, the customers, the employees, whatever, those are stakeholders. And we know that they we, they have to be made happy and the millennials and the Gen Z are going to be brainwashed thinking it's a total calamity if we don't address climate change, carbon emissions that are going to end their lives, social injustice. Oh my God. Oh my God. Social injustice. I don't want to work for a racist company. I couldn't buy from a company that BLM decided to extort into adopting all these DEI policies unless they adopted them like faster and more and somebody cried on TV in a struggle session. Do you get the, the model? And then Inside Out by rewriting the social contract, which is part of Klaus I didn't read. Um, where the goal of rewriting the social contract is to make these values, the standard values of what people expect in the literally global citizenship environment, where global citizenship was defined in terms of supporting these initiatives. Super backwards and corrupt. To quote Klaus one more time, he had an interview last summer uh, where he said that the West is rapidly, because of the ESG, frankly, the West is rapidly rewriting its social contract, he said. And what he said is it was doing is the social contract was being rewritten to move away from an economy of production and consumption and into an economy of caring and sharing. So they are going to tell you what to care about and who to share with. In other words, communism. The brand names for this are degrowth, distributism is a sometimes word that's going to run through corporate subsidiarity, the stakeholder capitalism model or the stakeholder model, ESG as its implementation, the well-being economy. Um, it uses tools like well-being and ecological accounting to assess the future value of very abstract things so that they can claim that they're producing more value by restricting you from producing actual revenue or product. Uh, and this is the corrupt model of ESG, and it's we're, we're making headway against ESG. We need to continue making headway against ESG. In fact, we need to destroy ESG. And I'm not positive that this podcast helped people understand why and, in fact, how. Like, shareholder, shareholders need to start pressing hard on some fiduciary responsibility questions here because shareholder primacy is still, the, still a thing. We also need to be working very hard to prevent them from being able to implement these reporting standards. We need to go after the SEC. We need to go after the Biden administration and the states that are trying to force this on the corporations. It's time literally for a gigantic shareholders and corporate revolt against this system to break free of it so we can get back to free enterprise and prosperity. And I hope this podcast has um, helped un help you understand what's going on and why. Straight out of the words of uh, their own words, which, I mean... To be fair, I do have to pull back the the veneer of um, communist BS so that you can understand it. But it's not actually that hard to, to make sense of what, what they're doing and what's going on and who's actually getting cheated in this besides the abstract everybody by us falling into global communism run through corporate subsidiarity. And if you don't know what that mean, means or looks like, again, the CCP is doing it in China and has been for uh, getting on since about, you know, the 80s. So it looks like China. We're going to look like China. ESG is made to make us look like China after we degrow our economy so that we're weaker and so that we don't have the ability to really fight back against it. And um, it's going to be ultimately most bad for the actual shareholders. 
that are involved who are actually getting massively deprived of lots of value by the corporate executives having perverse incentive structures to force this system into play uh, at the expense of, of shareholder uh, return. And they say so and try to dance around it very explicitly in this document. So I'm hoping that shareholders are ready to um, revolt. I'm hoping that corporate players are well, are ready to be whistleblowers, including executives. I'm hoping that uh, more people are willing to push back on this, get information out about it, uh, and start looking to file lawsuits against it, whether it's DEI initiatives, whether it's ESG requirements, challenging the carbon emissions thing. These industries that are, are being pressed out of, uh, pressed into net zero need to speak up. Like, hey, yeah, airline industry, cruise industry, blah, blah, blah. You maybe you're going along or whatever. No, they're really trying to kill your industry. You're helping them kill, you're, you're, they're help, you're helping them make your industry commit suicide. They really do want that. You really are helping that. I know that some people in these industries probably don't fully realize what they're doing, but it's right there in front of you. And it's time for people to start opening their mouths, speaking up, speaking back and eventually, you know, blowing whistles and filing lawsuits. I hope this uh, helps because this is why we have to take down ESG. And we have to stop, actually. It's corrupt incentive structures that are putting it into place. <laughs>